Welcome to Passy Muir's CAM Podcast, Conversations on Error Digestive Management. This episode of CAM features your host, Dr. Kristen King, and guest, respiratory therapist Rachel O'Hare, having a conversation on flow, pressure control, and volume control with ventilator management. Welcome once again, everyone, to our Conversations on Area Digestive Management, the CAM podcast. So I'm here today with Rachel O'Hare. She is a full-time clinical specialist with Passy Muir and is a registered respiratory therapist. Her area of expertise is respiratory therapy, and she's worked in a number of settings. She's traveled around the United States, worked in all types of settings and hospitals, different states, so really has an nice broad range of experience to include working as an RT in the military. So she really comes at us with a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience. So welcome, Rachel. Thank you, Kristen. Today, I wanted to have you on again because we get a lot of questions about working with patients who are on mechanical ventilation. And that's an area that speech language pathologists don't get a lot of training in. You know, we don't have a lot of background information. And so I thought it might be nice to have you come on and for us to chat and provide some of that background, like start giving some, you know, just kind of basic fundamental concepts to help SLPs start really grasping mechanical ventilation and how it works and what it is, you know, that kind of idea. And I know I asked you about it and you said we needed to start with flow and flow being a volume of air. So can you tell us a little bit about maybe even why we should start with flow. Like, why is that the starting point when we're going to talk about mechanical ventilation? Well, it's really because when you look at mechanical ventilation in its basic form, you strip it down to, you know, away from mode settings, all of that, it is just flow. Okay. We are putting flow through a circuit, delivering it to our patients and helping them breathe. So to understand that you have to understand that flow is just nothing more than a volume of air um, that is moving through space and time. And the way we can direct or control that flow typically is by, you know, having a sealed system or creating some resistance to it. So ventilator is a machine that directs flow through a circuit to the patient. And then once it's in the patient, we, that's how we're breathing. That's essentially the basics. There is just flow through a circuit to your patient to help them breathe. Um, we make adjustments to that flow. We put in settings that direct how that flow works. Um, but it is very basic in that sense. And so the only way that we can get our pressures and things that you see on that screen is by creating some resistance to flow. Pressure is only generated when flow is obstructed or there is some resistance to it. And we typically get that resistance by using a tube that like typically we're talking here, a tracheostomy tube, but you can also get some of that resistance from um, an endotracheal tube as well and creating a seal on your system. So the seal that we use typically is that cuff and it, the cuffed is what helps us seal that system. So we can definitely direct the flow from the ventilator into the lungs. So I hope that kind of basically introduces flow in the most basic concept. So flow is volume. Just think of that as the volume that we're applying or delivering to our patients. Okay. Thanks. No, I think, I think that is really good. And you mentioned the cuff being the seal, and that's something we've talked about before that the main or primary purpose of a cuff on a tracheostomy tube is to help seal the airway for mechanical ventilation. And you've gone a step farther because you're explaining that seal is what helps develop the pressure. Yes. 
Okay. Yes. Um, because without any seal or resistance there, there is no pressure. It's just volume moving through space and time. So you mentioned flow and the need for pressure. The cuff helps to seal the airway. Do you mind just giving some basic, because you may, you mentioned peak inspiratory pressure at one point and peak. Do you mind just explaining what those terms are for people listening? Yeah. So peak inspiratory pressure is actually measuring the resistance to flow. That's essentially what we're doing. So when we're measuring our peak inspiratory pressure, just know it is a measurement on the ventilator and it's looking at how much force or how much pressure it takes to get the volume from the vent into the lungs. Okay. So when we're measuring this, there's a lot of factors that impact what that measurement comes out to be things like the size of the tube, you know, smaller space creates more resistance to flow. So that can increase your peak inspiratory pressure, lung compliance, basically the disease process or in how, you know, if there's any um, issues with, you know, how sick those lungs are, sometimes they can become stiff and non-compliant. Um, and those are really the two primary factors that impact how much pressure we're applying to the lungs that, or we're measuring how much force it takes to get that flow or that volume into the lungs like we need to. So peak inspiratory pressure um, is definitely um, something we're always looking at because mechanical ventilation actually goes against our normal physiologic state. We are providing that flow through the circuit, we're creating the resistance, and that creates a positive pressure. And positive pressure ventilation is what we use for all ventilatory support, but our normal physiologic state is actually negative pressure internally. Okay. When our diaphragm contracts downward, that creates a negative pressure gradient inside the lungs, which draws the air in. Um, so when we're actually applying that positive pressure, we're actually pushing that instead of allowing that negative pressure. So it goes against that. So we're always being aware of how much pressure we're applying to the lungs because you can apply too much, um, too much pressure like anything else, too much of a good thing can cause trouble. So um, we're always paying attention to that. And that's what our peak inspiratory pressure is actually reading, how much pressure we're applying. And maybe if we're seeing higher pressures, we need to start adjusting how we're approaching using the flow from the ventilator to help our patients breathe. Well, one thing you mentioned that I want to touch on, and it's a little bit of a sidetrack, but you mentioned that the size of the tube, the tracheostomy tube impacts that flow because of the it resistance, depending on the size of the tube and the resistance someone will have. And I know with our ventilator patients, sometimes as a speech pathologist, you know, our thought is, oh, we need to downsize the tracheostomy tube if they don't have a patent airway. But often we'll hear from the doctors, we can't ventilate them with a lower trach tube size. We need, we have to keep the size we have. We cannot downsize them because we need it for ventilation. Can you talk about that a little bit about trach tube size and ventilating and that resistance that you mentioned? Yeah. So when we're looking at, I, we were, we always equate it to say like breathing through a straw. If you think about a straw that you put into your drink and it's that tiny little space and you're imagine trying to breathe, suck in all your air and exhale all of your air in and out of that. And you had no other option of doing the, so like no other space for that air to move. It's very challenging can make it very, very hard. So when we're talking about like the space of the tube and how much, how we're helping our patients ventilate, we do have to weigh that because too small a space can make it very difficult for your patients to initiate their own breaths and things through that tube. So we need to have a balance between 
so small that they can't get the air through. And, you know, again, the smaller that space is, the more pressure it requ requires to get the air through it. Um, can be a little bit challenging there. So balancing the need between having airflow into the upper airway and the size of tube that you're using for your patients is kind of crucial. So when we're talking about your doctor looking and saying, oh, the tube is too small, I can't ventilate. One of the things they're taking into consideration is invasive ventilation doesn't like to have a leaking system, meaning they don't want to, the ventilator doesn't like to see airflow moving around that tube. It wants all of its volume to be going in and out of that tube because that allows us to get those precise measurements on that flow and that pressure and the volume that we talked about. And if we open up space into the upper airway for airflow to move, it can often confuse your machine and it makes it very difficult to control what we're doing for our patients when that machine is confused like that. Um, so one of the solutions that you can, you know, um, help with that is direct your machine to address that leak a little bit different. And so when we're talking about that, essentially the, the doctor's saying either there's too much resistance to flow, it's too small of space, your patient can't get the volumes and things that they need, or it's too much pressure to get it through that space, or we have too big of a leak into our system and it's making it very difficult for that ventilator to provide the support that we need for our patients to breathe. Okay, thanks. No, I think that'll help a little bit because that's a pretty common question that comes up sometimes. The other thought in time out flow, you've mentioned a lot about pressure and you've been talking about you know the pressure, positive pressure and delivering pressure. But most of the patients we see are on volume control, not pressure. So can you talk a little bit about what the difference is between pressure control and volume control? So when, when we're putting our settings into our ventilator, first and foremost, we're always selecting the mode of ventilation, and that's how we support our patients' spontaneous efforts of breathing. Then we select the type of breath to be delivered within the mode. And there are three options for that. You have volume control you have pressure control and you have PRVC, which we call pressure regulated volume control. And so the approach is how we're delivering that flow or that volume through the circuit. Okay. So when we are using volume control, we tell the ventilator how much volume to deliver to the lungs. Okay. It's called our tidal volume, and that's going to be delivered to our patients on every breath. When they take that breath in, the vent is going to deliver that X amount of volume, whatever we have set, say it's set at 500, that 500 is going to go to the lungs and the vent is going to deliver that volume regardless of how much pressure it takes to get there. Okay. So the pressure is kind of not thought about. It's like, oh, we are, we want this volume vent is going to deliver the volume and the pressure is just a measurement of how much force it takes to get that volume in. Now pressure controls the exact opposite. We don't set a volume. We set a pressure. Okay. So with that pressure, it's an inspiratory pressure that we're setting. And so with that, our patients, um, the vent is going to deliver volume until it hits that pressure. So it's going to you know, inflate the lungs until it meets enough resistance, that pressure, that, that inspiratory pressure, and then cycle to exhalation. So your pressure on every breath is consistent. It will not change. Okay. But your volume is variable. Okay, the volume can vary from breath to breath. So again, volume control is that set volume. It's consistent. It's going to be delivered, but our pressure is variable. In pressure control, volume is variable, but the pressure is consistent. Okay, so those are the two main ones. And then the PRVC that we talked about is kind of a hybrid of both. 
Okay, so the way we're using PRVC, it's pressure regulated volume control. So the idea here is that we want to set the volume that the vent is going to deliver, but we want that ventilator to use the least amount of pressure possible. So the volume that you're actually setting is a target. The vent is going to deliver as close to that volume as possible while using the least amount of pressure to do so. So it's constantly looking at how much air is going into the lungs, how much air is being exhaled from the lungs and how much pressure it took to deliver that and adjusting its pressure and volume accordingly so that we can get as close to the target and use the least amount of pressure necessary to deliver the volume to the lungs. Okay. So how does someone decide if it's, if they're going to use pressure control or volume control with a patient? Like, is there certain patient criteria or, or how's that decided? I wish there was a standard answer to that. <laughs> I feel like that varies from place to place, um, policies, procedures, protocols, physicians, preference. I will say it's been a long time since we've used straight volume control. Always, we're always constantly thinking about how much force are we applying to the lungs? Because as I said, it goes against that normal um, physiologic state, that positive pressure of pushing. Mm -hmm. We always want to be aware of how much push we're providing. And when, if you're using volume control, you're setting the volume and that pressure is variable and that pressure, some, that vent can sometimes apply large amounts of pressure just to get that volume in. It's not our first thing. Most of the time where you're going to either see PRVC, which is that pressure regulated volume control, because we have the component of setting the tidal volume like we like to see, but the vent is automatically going to try to use the least amount of pressure. So lung protective strategy there. Um, pressure control is very lung protective strategy as well. We, we say, Hey, we don't want any more than this amount of pressure being used on the lungs and the vent will only deliver volumes to the pressure. So there's, there's, you know, a lot of different factors to consider, but most of the time it really comes down to physician's preference and what is used in the facilities. I've worked in some facilities where we're doing, you know, PRVC and that's it. Everybody gets PRVC. I've worked in other facilities where it's all pressure control. We apply pressure control to every single patient. And I would say sometimes too, it depends on the age of the patient. Sometimes our pediatric patients, most of the time our pediatric patients were using a pressure control because again, it's more lung protective. We're saying we're not going to apply any more pressure than this to the lungs. And we work within that for the safety and, you know, protection of those, those tiny, sometimes underdeveloped lungs of our patients. Yeah. I was going to ask about <laughs> that because I typically have heard in my practice, I heard with pediatrics, I would hear pressure control and I'd hear volume control more frequently with adults. And then currently I know with some of the people that I've talked with in countries outside of the United States, I, my understanding is that pressure control is a little more popular, I'll say, than volume control. I will say from, um, as a clinician, personal preference, I love pressure control. I think it's underused underrated, um, you know, just because it's not as widely, um, understood maybe even in, you know, the respiratory world, cause we're so used to, you know, we want to have that control over the volume of what's going into our patients. Um, and we don't have that when we do uh, pressure control, I will say as clinicians, it's, um, but we are control freaks. We typically want to control everything that we're doing for our patients, and relinquishing that control is often hard and pressure control relinquishes the control a little bit because the volume is variable. Um, we, 
have to really pay attention to those numbers because the amount of volume that is reaching the lungs or, you know, the variations in volume actually indicate changes in lung compliance, the health of our patient and things like that. And so seeing that firsthand and making adjustments accordingly does require us to kind of relinquish the control and working with the patient a little bit more volume control is just very much. We're going to deliver this. You're going to get it. And, um, little bit, I mean, you still have some of that where you can see what's going on, but I feel like you just, if you're more in tune with your patient in the pressure control, you can actually see those changes right off the bat. Like if they need suctioning, you'll notice their volumes will drop right away. There's something going on there. Their pressures are consistent, but their tidal volumes are going down. So you have to suction or do something. Oh, okay. Something's changed. It's very, very sensitive to the changes of your patient. Whereas I feel volume control is not. So to kind of round this out, what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, since I said, this is kind of the basics to under, you know, start getting that understanding of ventilator and how they function. Do you mind just defining like, what is a mode? What is a setting? What, you know, that type of thing. Cause I think there's some confusion on that sometimes as to, you know, what we're looking at just from that standpoint with a ventilator. Okay. So like I said, there's really two components that make up the mode of ventilation. And that is then the mode itself and the type of breath. And we've already talked about the types of breaths. Those are the volume pressure and PRVC, but the mode itself is actually just telling the vent how much support we're going to provide our patients, especially when the patient initiates their own breath, which we call a spontaneous breath. Okay. So we have, there are several modes out there, but there are three primary modes that are on every single ventilator. And I promise you they're on every single ventilator. I always challenge somebody, if someone finds a vent that does not have all three of these, let me know, please email me because I have worked extensively out there, many different places, many different ventilators and yet to find one. So if you do, let me know. But the three primary modes of ventilation are CMV, which stands for continuous mandatory ventilation. This mode is often called things like assist control. Okay. And then we have SIMV, which is synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation. Um, again, this is SIMV. Good thing about SIMV is it is called SIMV on every ventilator. I've yet to see it called something else. Um, and then we have our CPAP or spontaneous mode. Um, so those are the three modes that you see everywhere. And essentially what we're doing when we're selecting that mode, as I said before, is asking how much support do we want to provide to our patients' spontaneous efforts. So when you're selecting CMV or assist control, that is complete control. Again, that stands for continuous mandatory ventilation. Okay, so when we put in um, CMV mode, we have control over how many breaths per minute the patient is going to receive. Okay, that's called the frequency. We either set that pressure control or the volume. So we either, you know, have the inspiratory pressure or the tidal volume set. We set an FiO2, which is how much oxygen, and we set the PEEP. And those settings are going to be delivered on every single breath, whether the patient initiates them or whether the patient or whether it's a mandatory breath that the vent is going to deliver. Every single breath is exactly the same. I call this the cookie cutter approach to ventilation because there is no variation there. And so really what you need to know, if you walk in the room and you see your patient and it says CMV or assist control, and you tell them, Hey, take a deep breath. They cannot, 
Okay. So they can initiate their own breath, but the breath that they take is going to be the exact same as every other breath they receive. Okay. They have no variation there. Um, I will tell you as a clinician, this is my least favorite mode, Um, but it is the most used mode. Unfortunately, I don't know why or how that happens, but the reason I say this to you is when we are looking at the mode of ventilation here and supporting our patients, we, we have to remember that when we place our patient on that machine and the machine starts taking over that work of breathing, um, muscles begin to atrophy our patients, you know, if they're not using it, they're losing it kind of approach there. And with a cis control or CMV mode, your patient uses no muscle strength at all. They don't have to work at all to deliver that, to get that breath delivered to them. So they don't have any exercise going on. So that's CMV. We have complete control. Now, SIMV is synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation. So we still have that mandatory component that you see in CMV. And with that mandatory component, that's where we set that frequency or the respiratory rate. As you see, we set, you know, either the pressure control or volume control settings for that. And those will be delivered on that set frequency that we have them, you know, breath rate that we have. So say, for example, I set that um, breath rate at 10 breaths per minute. That means every six seconds that vent is going to deliver my breath to my patients. And in between, that's where my patient initiates their own breath. The difference between SIMV and CMV is in SIMV, when my patient initiates their own breath, they can take what they want. We use pressure support to support their breath. Okay. And with pressure support, our patients have a lot more leeway to breathe. They can take as big a breath as they want. They can spend as much time in inhalation as we want. We direct the vent a little bit, but they have a lot more leeway. Okay. So SIMV is kind of a good in-between mode because you have the full mandatory support and you can provide full support in SIMV. Um, You just do that by increasing that set frequency high enough that your patient's not having to initiate their own breath, but we're also allowing our patients to exercise with those pressure support breaths. So as they get stronger, we can start backing down that mandatory breath rate and allowing our patients to breathe spontaneously, building their strength, helping them wean them from the ventilator. So that's SIMV. It's the in-between mode. Then you have the spontaneous mode, which is often called CPAP. And in CPAP, We are relying on our patient's own respiratory drive. Our patient does not have a set frequency, does not have a set um, inspiratory pressure or tidal volume. We typically set a pressure support, a PEEP and an FiO2, and we let our patients breathe. Okay. So our patients are in the driver's seat here. They're driving that ventilator. We're just supporting their own respiratory efforts. Again, with that pressure support, they can get They initiate their own breath. They get as much volume as they want, you know, spend as much time in inhalation as they want. We direct the vent on how to cycle from inhalation to exhalation. This is our full weaning mode. So we use this to help get our patients off the ventilator. um, And we use that pressure support as the means of doing so. Um, So pressure support, you know, you have higher levels, which is, you know, usually around 15 and we have lower levels. The low end is five. And if we can wean our pressure support down to five, that's a good sign that we can take our patients off a mechanical ventilator. Now I would often hear though, pressure support like PS slash CPAP or pressure support and CPAP. Is that the same thing? What you were just talking about? Yes, that is the same thing. There's several variations of that. 
CPAP is a very common name for that. Although I will tell you, it's not true CPAP in invasive ventilation. <laughs> um, we call it that, but CPAP stands for continuous positive airway pressure, and it's a consistent pressure delivered on inhalation and exhalation. And that's not the case when we're using it in our, you know, modes of ventilation in invasive, we are providing a pressure support, which is a separate pressure from our PEEP. So there's two. So I, I never understood why they call it that, but just a little, you know, factoid to kind of. <laughs> well, and I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to date myself, but back when I started, I never heard CPAP. It was always just pressure support, at least in the facilities I worked in. Yeah. So it was always like the patient was on pressure support. CPAP was not with it. That came kind of later. Yeah. And, um, and I have a net, I never really understood it, but I appreciate your explanation. I didn't <laughs> now, uh, I think that's a, a really nice way to get people on the same page at, with those terms. The one term left that I want to touch base on is PEEP because okay. you've mentioned it, you know, setting PEEP with each of those and it's been mentioned a couple of times, but do you mind just sharing what does PEEP stand for? And then what is PEEP? Yeah. Yeah. So PEEP stands for positive end expiratory pressure. Okay. So what PEEP is, it's the residual amount of pressure inside the lungs that keep the alveoli open. Okay. So we never want to see our lungs fully collapse or deflate. If we do, that's called atelectasis. It isn't good. So we have to think about the lungs kind of as a balloon. So this is where we're going to tie in a little bit of that peak inspiratory pressure and PEEP and how they all kind of correlate. So when you're thinking of your lungs as a balloon, um, you got to think of like a brand new balloon that you just took out of the package and you're trying to blow it up. It takes a lot of energy or a lot of force. That would take a lot of peak inspiratory pressure, if you will, to get that balloon inflated. Okay. But if you inflate the balloon and you keep some of the air in it and then deflate some of it and then blow it up again, it's easier to blow up the second time. Okay. As long as you keep some air inside that balloon, it's easier to blow up. That's essentially what PEEP is. It's keeping some of that air inside of our balloon, our lungs, so that it's easier to reinflate when we breathe in. We always have that residual air, residual pressure, maintaining um, the alveoli and keeping them from fully collapsing. So when we're talking about PEEP, how PEEP is generated, PEEP is generated by resistance to the exhaled volume. Okay. So we have what we call physiologic PEEP. So physiologic PEEP is our natural internal PEEP, and this is created when we exhale through that upper airway. So when we exhale through the upper airway, all of the anatomy of the upper airway creates resistance to the exhale volume, which kind of creates this backflow or back pressure, which stints the alveoli open. So we have to remember that we need that PEEP. We don't want to have those lungs fully collapse, and we have to apply that when we're using a mechanical ventilator. When we're using a mechanical ventilator, we're using an artificial airway, okay? So that artificial airway is moving through either, you know, the endotracheal tube or the tracheostomy tube, um, but it's bypassing that upper airway, okay? Which means that same resistance to the expiratory volume is no longer there. That tube does not provide the same resistance. Um, so that physiologic PEEP that we have is lost. So we depend on the ventilator to provide that resistance, okay? And so ventilators typically do this by adding additional flow, adding additional volume or add additional air into that circuit so that when the patient exhales against that flow, that's what creates the resistance and creates that backflow or back pressure, which sends the alveoli open. So essentially PEEP, baseline PEEP for your patients mimics our normal physiologic PEEP, which is around five. So for most patients, 
five is kind of the baseline. I really not use less than five on anybody ever really. But if your patient is having issues with oxygenation, um, which is oxygen delivery to the tissues, like their um, sats are low, we sometimes increase that PEEP, which is basically distending those alveoli a little bit further so we can get better blood flow around it and better ability to pick up that oxygen and disperse it to the tissue. So increasing the PEEP helps you know, provide oxygenation. So PEEP and FiO2, your oxygen levels go hand in hand on your ventilator. So that's why sometimes you may see that PEEP greater than five is to help support the oxygenation needs of your patient. Well, thanks. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I think that was, I mean, such great explanations of the terms. Hopefully that's going to give our listeners some foundational information and an understanding of ventilation, like kind of get us started. And uh, I appreciate your time today talking, talking us through those concepts. I hope it helps. I would encourage you to get with your respiratory therapist, wherever you're at, if possible to kind of help. If you have questions, they can answer and, you know, walk you through some of that stuff a little bit, you know, and see it on the screen. I feel like that helps. I'm a very visual person, like hearing it is kind of hard, but seeing it may really help. So, you know, encourage you to work with those RTs, get to know your ventilators in your facility, and hopefully that can help clarify some of these things as well. No, I think that's a great idea. Well, thank you, Rachel. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you for listening to this episode of CAM. We are happy to offer continuing education credit through ASHA for this podcast. To receive credit, please go to www.passymure.com podcast and click on the continuing education link under this episode. Then you will either create an account or log into your existing education portal account. Complete the quiz and course evaluation for your podcast episode. Your certificate will be available for download once completed.